Welcome to a new episode of the Philmont Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a special archival Q&A from the 48th New York Film Festival in 2010 on Meek's Cutoff with director Kelly Reichard and moderated by Melissa Anderson. Kelly Reichard returns to NYFF for this year's 60th anniversary edition with the North American premiere of Showing Up, a main site selection, which reunites the director with star Michelle Williams in a marvelously particularized portrait of a sculptor's daily work and frustrations in an artist's enclave in Portland. Tickets to NYFF 60, which takes place September 30th to October 16th, are now on sale. Don't miss screenings of Showing Up on October 5th and 6th, followed by Q&As with Reichardt. Get tickets at filmlink.org slash NYFF. I would like to start out by asking about, yeah, it's, uh, it's, easy, it's easy to get lost in these nice leather couches, chairs. Um, one of the really remarkable aspects of your work is that you pay such close attention to regional d- detail. And although your last three films have been set in the Pacific Northwest, your first film, River of Grass, takes place in Florida, where you grew up. Could you talk a little bit about what aspects of each region you've, you've hoped to convey? Um, it's funny, I'm always asked about uh, these places. I, hmm, it's, it's not like a grand scheme or anything. Um, it's more that, um, I guess, in figuring out the place, it's just sort of the way to start in figuring out the story and the characters and how they would move in the space and who they would be. So um, uh, it's more, I guess, that I first figure out how what I would do with the space and then start bringing the story into it. Um, I, sort of, I start location scouting when we're first making, first making drafts of the story of what we're gonna write about and then um, bring John Raymond photos from places, and um, or he knows places, because he's, in the last films, um, he's an Oregonian, and he knows, um, you know, the specifics of the land. So we'll, like, take some trips, or um, one of my producers and I, uh, for Meek's Cutoff, went and camped out where the actual story took place, and it's just a way to start, um, and so everything sort of starts with location scouting even before we're starting to write, and so it just kind of builds from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it's, I don't know if it's so much that I have some specific thing I want to say about this place. I'm just, it's one of the fun things to figure a place out, mm-hmm. and then it just sort of integrates itself. Mm-hmm. And, you mentioned John Raymond just a minute ago. How did your collaboration with him begin? You, he co-wrote Old Joy and Wendy and Lucy with you and is credited as sole screenwriter for Meek's right. Cutoff. It's been different every time. Um, I met him because I had read his novel, The Half-Life, which I completely loved. And he was a friend of Todd Haynes, who has executive produced all these films. And, um, and after I read The Half-Life, I was on a, just driving cross-country and I asked him if he had any short stories. And Old Joy had been something he had written to come out in a collection of photos for Justine Curlin. Mm-hmm. And I asked him if I could adapt it into a screenplay. And he was like, sure. So I went off and did that. And, um, and then with Wendy and Lucy, uh, we came up with an outline together. And he started writing the short story. And then... I started writing a, the script, and we were sort of just trading information back and forth. And, um, and yeah, and if we come to a head, he keeps what he wants in the story, and I keep what I want in the screenplay. But he's definitely the one coming up with the voices and um, themes and structure. Like, I'll work with the structure, but the voices are really start with him. And then... Um, on Meek's cutoff, he had just finished a, a second novel and he had just finished a book of shorts called Livability that came out last year. And he was just burnt on the short story. And so he just dove into writing the script, which was kind of harder for me just because usually where I start is 
taking apart the story and just a way to get started and get your head into it. And so it was a little trickier um, to approach something that already told you where scenes were starting and ending and as opposed to just coming to that by myself. Mm-hmm. And But then um, as I started scouting more and more in the places, figuring out the places where we would actually shoot, that sort of became uh, where I could sort of, you know, just do the last drafts before we shoot myself to work them in, mm-hmm. take what he's written and work it into what's actually going to happen. Because he's a really poetic writer mm-hmm. and he's very just, you know, like one day rolls into the next and which is what I love about it. But when you go to shoot, you can't, you, you have to decide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and there, and, and, you know, the idea, it's really like the idea that John has of just like, you're in the desert and you, um, you know, you're walking the desert and you're surprised by, the immigrants are surprised by something. And, and then when I'm actually in the desert and I say, well, I'm, you know, can see, you know, into next week from where I'm standing, you know, you can't really be surprised in the desert, you know, Mm -hmm. then that all sort of starts to have to, I always say I like take the poetry out of his script Mm -hmm. because I just have to, make it concrete, Mm -hmm. but all those things that are in his writing are ultimately what I want the film to come back to, because it's it's what's so, he just writes about space in such a great way, in sense of time, in a way that's so beautiful, I mean, I don't know, I'm obviously attracted to his writing, Mm -hmm. and um, so I don't know, it's been different for us every time, and uh, we just have to, we just find our way, depending on what's going on in our lives, Mm -hmm. at that moment Mm -hmm. and and I should just say also like when I'm cutting and he hasn't been there all through production it's really great to be able to show him rough cuts and get notes from him because he hasn't lived through all the Mm -hmm. all that we've been through and he's like a good set of eyes for Mm -hmm. that so the collaboration really sort of goes on well well, I'm curious to know more about your editing process because you have worked as editor for your last three features what is the how do you work as an editor um, slowly, um, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know, I cut my first film with Larry Fessenden, and he really taught me a lot, he taught me really everything about editing, and, um, and I had this rule, sort of, no cut can happen unless I'm in the room, I want to mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and I realized, like, wow, it's really through cutting, you just figure out everything you would do when you're shooting, mm-hmm. like, oh, and so over the course of making my short films, I figured out I just started practicing editing. And then by the time I made Old Joy, um, I, it's just too, I, it's just too frustrating. I'm too, do this, not do that. You know, it's just like, it doesn't really work to work with someone. I just want to sort of, after um, having been through production, you know, it's very nice just to get the film back to yourself and close the door and be in a room by yourself with it and be able to go like, okay, what just happened? You know, as far as my film. Um, and so I sort of start, um, I always think of it, like I tell my students, I always feel like it's like I dragged a big log into the living room and I'm just gonna whittle away until I find my movie in there. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it's pretty private, mm-hmm. um, nice. And there's never, you know, these films are made for so little money, there's no rush, mm-hmm. you know, so it can take its time and um and then I'll been showing stuff and seeing stuff with the same sort of handful of friends for the last 20 years mm-hmm. now where we give each other notes and that's really helpful and great and mm-hmm. another important collaborator for you on your past two films is Michelle Williams who's in Meek's Cutoff and in Wendy and Lucy can you talk about the director actor relationship that the two of you have formed yeah, well, it was very different um, on Meek's Cutoff than it was. Wendy and Lucy, it was just the two of us. Um, we had, we started shooting, you know, it's like she got there and we started shooting, as is always the case, because I never really have anyone long enough to have a real rehearsal period. But I sent her books and images and things, you know, I'm always sending her things to read and if, look at. If I remember correctly, wasn't one of her assignments to look at Mouchette to prepare for Wendy um, and Lucy? She saw part of Mouchette. It was really, for some reason, um, the Apu trilogy was, I can't remember exactly why, but I remember her 
watching that. And um, yeah, she'd never seen any Brisson at all. And um, Mouchette was playing up at Symphony Space. And um, I think she watched, I remember her watching bleak moments. And um, But then I'd give her things to read. And she likes anything, you know. Mm -hmm. She just wants a lot of stuff. Like, give me a lot of stuff. Pictures, books, anything that's... Um, uh, Marilyn Robinson, anything that's relevant, she she wants, and um, and then when we meet, we're it's time to start shooting. And it, it, one thing I think that was true in both cases, um, you know, Michelle's a very cautious actor, and she likes to it. Like we we start working, and I feel like we're both finding the character. Like I'm going through that adjustment of, you know, what's been in your imagination, which you know changes every day. It to like hear someone saying the words, this is it, this is what it, you know. And it, I, I feel like it takes us both a while to figure out who the character is and we're figuring it out as we go. And then there's that day where we're just like, oh yeah, okay, phew, there she is, you know. And there's this feeling of relief. And um, But it's funny when I'm cutting, I can't tell where that moment is exactly. And... Um, so, I don't know, there's always this conversation that I never really, I never, I mean, acting to me is just such a completely mysterious thing. It's not like, I don't, I don't, what actors do, why anyone would do it. I mean, I just don't have any bone in my body that would ever let myself be so out of control and in someone else's hands. I have no idea what they're thinking. <laughs> but, um, but I do think that there's, um, they're doing their thing, and I do think that um, there's a way to get across what you want to get across with the camera and where you put the camera and what lens you put on the camera and how you move the camera, and that you're telling the story in that way also. And then, um, you know, the actors doing what they're doing for their part. And, um, and it's, I don't know, it's an interesting thing, because sometimes we'll come to a point and she'll be like, I can't believe you're going with that take. It, you know, completely sucked. And I'm be like, no, that's the one, what are you talking about? And, and it's, it's tricky because it, it, it's really, you know, it's hard to say. It's, it's, um, it's subjective, but it's also going to have to do with like what's on either side of it. And, you know, there's so many ways to cut something. And to, I mean, there has to be something there. And, and there's always something there with Michelle for me. You know, so I feel like there's a lot of options um, with her. Mm -hmm. And and the main thing about Michelle is she's just so game to do stuff. And so anything physical, you know, she's going to get to learn to fire a gun, a musket from 1845. She's in or mm -hmm. hop a train. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've yeah, got she's, her. She she's just a wants to do. Yeah, she wants to do some. She just wants like there's a scene in Meek's cutoff where she's in a wagon and she's throwing furniture out of the wagon. It's really hard to stand up in those wagons, not to mention in that dress and anything like that. Like that's the stuff that makes her dive in. Mm -hmm. that, and she'll, she's a sport. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. many of your films also are very sly subversions of, of genre. And I'm thinking um, River of Grass is kind of a tweak of the the couple on the lamb movie. It's kind of an anti Bonnie and Clyde. And I remember you once described old joy as a new age western wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that but then todd haynes told me never to say that again oh <laughs> and i always do what todd tells me because he's very smart <laughs> well man. perhaps you'd like to use another this is your moment to use another term um, if you wish he really hated that phrase summing up of it um whoops um well yeah well the genre is like that's a good place to start right because it gives you a shape of something and um and I teach, so, I don't know, when you're teaching, you're kind of just deconstructing stuff all the time. That's how it goes, I think. I mean, I don't know, for me, that's how it goes. And um, it's so, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's weird. They all end up being road movies, though, sort of, in the end, I guess, really. Yeah. Um, they're all, in the end, people trying to go somewhere and not being able to go somewhere, which just is funny, because it's not really what you think, it's not what I think of when we're starting. But... Um, yeah, I mean, with Old Joy, I mean, with River of Grass, I mean, I feel like in that one, um, it's the starkest, and I, 
I, I, I love a genre and I love a cliche, but it's that, it's the balancing act of being the cliche and being on the safe side of it. And I, I can't watch River of Grass, but when I, I know that I'm not on the safe side of it enough of the time in that film. What, um, what do you mean by that? I'm, I'm the cliche more than I meant to be, mm. I would say. I was young. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, after I made that movie, Film Forum was doing like a summer of 70s films and they showed like 82 films from 1970 to 1979, of which I went to all of them and um, never even bought the membership pass, which was each day just figuring out how to pay to get into the Film Forum. <laughs> but I um, just remember seeing Badlands again and really almost having to crawl out of the theater just thinking like, oh my God, like, you know, just... Um, my references were so bare and um, not, uh, you know, and so substandard. I don't know. Uh, a lot pains me about that film. But again, it was my first movie. <laughs> it was my first narrative film. It's so. a very impressive mm -hmm. debut. You're being much too hard on yourself. Oh. Um, so should I bring up the New Age Western term again? Oh, should we just... New Age... Uh, yeah, I don't even know exactly what I meant. But um, I can't remember. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's weird to um, live through them and then, and I sort of feel like it's also not completely my job, unless it's your job. Um, like, just to sum up my, to my own films, you know what I mean? Understood. And it's like hard to put them back in the box, even if you started sure. somewhere with this idea of... Um, I mean, I don't know what that movie is exactly. Um, I'm not sure. Well, then let's talk about Meek's Cutoff, okay. which is you're working much more specifically within the template of the Western. But I, you know, I avoided that. I didn't use the word Western until sure. I showed the film for the first time. Right. And, and that, that word was thrust upon <laughs> me. You know, I really tried to avoid it. And it's hard to avoid, obviously, but... I tried to avoid it when we were making the film just to keep from getting boxed in and also just, you know, from the perspective of some of the actors who have been around longer and have been in a ton of movies, when you say Western, they are expecting a, you to go about it in a certain way, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, if you drag people out to the desert for way under their rate, and they have all the dialogue in the movie, they're not expecting that you're going to set the camera up way over there <laughs> from someone else's and be on the listener the whole time. That's not really what they have in mind if you say Western. Um, you know, so it, I just felt truly trapped by the idea of, like, Western. But it's a Western. I'll, you know, I guess we can say that I mean, you're, really ex you're ex certainly expanding the definition of the, of the genre. Well, it's such a male genre to begin with, yeah. you know, so there's, it's like, how do you get into it in the first place? You know, it's so, um, everything about it is sort of not exactly what comes naturally to me as far, you know, it's about really heightened moments of action and mm -hmm. heroic largesse mm -hmm. and things that are, aren't really my, just not my thing, you know, and, and it's really about mostly male confrontation kind of. Um, so those aren't really any of the things we took on. So I thought of it more as, uh, um, I was, you know, more, I was thinking, you know, obviously this is not a fair reference because this film's like, you know, of great importance. But, you know, it was like, you know, it was like Nanook of the North for me more than, uh, not that it was that, but just that was the, the way I wanted to think of it more than like the Western. You well, know. no, that's a fascinating comparison because one of the many, you know, the way that you leave your mark or you expand the idea of the Western is you really focus on, in a very detailed way, the arduousness of the domestic chores that people would have to do to survive. Like, how do you gather firewood, and how do you make biscuits and stew, and what time do you have to get up? And it's very similar to, I guess, is Nyla the name of Nanook's wife, how she has to yeah. chew the snowshoes to soften them up? Yeah. Um, can you talk more about, I mean, again, you're such a, a specific and detailed filmmaker. 
how you, was there a lot of research involved in the historical and period specifics in, in Meek's yeah. cutoff? It, it was, I was, I felt like I was in sixth grade. I was such a bad student, but it was like American history, the pioneer. I mean, it, I hadn't, I, I don't, I was, I don't know. I didn't know so much about it, but it was really fun to research. It was mm -hmm. really, really, really interesting. And just, um, uh, yeah, the, um, I was, I was just saying the Q&A half an hour ago. <laughs> Sorry if you were there. Um, just the, the, um, the diaries from the time, um, were so expansive at the beginning of the journey. And just the way people talked about landscape and what they were going to and heaven on earth and their dreams and their ambitions and the other families. And, and as the journey goes on, like the writing just gets narrowed down to like lists, you know, which were just like Rocky Road, crossed river four times, um, bad grass, uh, or the women's diaries would just be, you know, set up tent, uh, you know, built fire, uh, whatever the chore, you know, just like a chore list. Mm -hmm. And um, and that was really interesting to me, just how minimalist it became and how hardcore. And that's really where we pick up in Meek's cutoff. They've already been traveling for six months, and they're at the point where their diaries would just be list at that point. And I just thought, wow, that's really, like, you're really getting down mm -hmm. to it. And so... That was, um, yeah, and then we, um, yeah, we had like a pioneer camp for the actors with some reenactment people, and they, and for a week, they had a week of, you know, building their tents and stocking their wagons and learning how to drive oxen and making fire without mattress and um, building, uh, at which we did this up at Bard where I teach too. We had like a pioneer test kitchen where we cook some bread in the ground, and, um, and so we just, they... Uh, it was all, it became really great because it came research that really went into the art department, that really mm -hmm. went into the acting, and everybody sort of had to really into the wardrobe and um, get, and then our motels where we were staying, we were just staying at, there's just one motel in town called the Horseshoe, um, and we all had our rooms, and it was like a sweatshop over in the, you know, two-person costume department, and they're hand-sewing everything, and then... Um, you know, that we used wagons from the period that had to be sort of stripped down and um, the wheels were, uh, we replaced some of the materials on the bottom of the wagons, but the wheels and the carriages were from the period. And um, and so, you know, there was like that labor. There was so much labor. It was so labor intensive getting ready for the shoot. It was incredible. But it all, it was, it just had this, you know, that we were out in the desert and it sometimes just um, looked so great to me mm -hmm. in that sense of just, um, our labors. Mm -hmm, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Were there any westerns that influenced or informed this film? Sure. Um, well, I like the western. Um, I like. Uh, I mean, it's informed. I mean, you know, I teach, so I am looking at stuff all the time, and it's hard to know anymore what where stuff's leaking in from and where it's coming from. I mean at this point. Um, but um, I love Anthony Mann's westerns and um, William Wellman and Bud Bedecker and um, Nicholas Ray. And um, I've never seen the Ida Lupino. I know she did westerns uh, for mm -hmm. TV and I've, I haven't seen those, mm -hmm. but um, I'd be curious to. I know she's, I'd be just so curious to see what those are. Um, but so, Sure, I like a western. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there there could be parts of stuff too you really like, and it's just some western stuff is so hokey. I mean, you know, I mean, I love McCabe and Mrs. Miller's maybe mm -hmm. an all time favorite film. Mm -hmm. um, Hired Hand, Ride in the Whirlwind, anything with War Notes, probably mm -hmm. you know. But anything with Barbara Stanwyck wearing sure, denim Stanwyck. and kerchiefs. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, I remember when I first came to New York, it was pouring down rain one day, and I was in front of the Ziegfeld, and I went in there, and it was like, Barbara Stanwyck, double feature, like two Westerns. I was like, oh, my God, living in New York. This would be like every day. It's like, <laughs> like the last great double feature at the Ziegfeld. I don't know. It's not an everyday occurrence. But um, 
Yeah, sure. I. Um... Uh, now I'm going to ask a more, not necessarily difficult, but convoluted question perhaps, right. but I'll try to make it not so convoluted. Your films often have, well, always have very subtle but yet unmistakable political allegories. Like in Old Joy, it's sort of a lament, I guess, and, and the hopelessness that people were feeling during the second term of George W. Bush. With, uh, I believe you referred to Wendy and Lucy as a post-Katrina film, or certainly a, 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 a film that's that was influenced by what was happening, or about human desperation and people helping each other or people not helping each other. Right. Uh, without asking you to give away too much or to demystify Meek's cut up too much, would you like to talk about the political allegory in the film? Um, not really. <laughs> yes, you know, no was I a mean, perfectly yeah, reasonable response. Just because I always feel disappointed in myself when I hear myself talk about the films in that way. I mean, there's early discussions about how things are relevant and weird and seem timely. and um, But then in the end, I always, you know, you try to get away from that and make the film you're making that's about whatever is in front of you. And, um, and what comes in, comes in, and what doesn't, doesn't. And then I just always feel like I've um, summed something up in some moment way that I didn't mean to. Mm. Um, I think, you know, Meek's cut off. It's like, it's the myth, it's the American myth. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, and that mythology reworks itself all the time and is, you know, we started making the film when uh, Bush was president and we had all these ideas about it. And then when I showed the first cut to some one of my colleagues, they were like, I get it. You know, the Indians, Obama, I get it. And it's just like, yeah, like you can apply anything sure. to it, you know? Yeah. And so like why, you know, what, you know, and it just is what it is too of the period. I mean, uh, Stephen Meek was a real man who read a, led a real wagon train out west into the desert without really knowing what he was doing. And, um, and it, so, it, I mean, that actually happened. So, uh, yeah, I always just think I, uh, yeah, why, why do that? <laughs> Understood. I'll let, leave it to the viewer or not, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, we would love to take questions from the audience. The question is about uh, Kelly's collaboration with her sound designer, Leslie Schatz, and I guess collaboration with other members of her crew. Right. Um, well, editing is pretty solitary. And, um, and I mean, you know, on Final Cut or The Avid, you can really just build your sounds as you want them to be. I can't mix them, but I can certainly lay in what I want to be. And then um, he asked me about Leslie Schatz, our sound mixer. And then you go to Leslie and all the um, crappy sounds that you're, you know, like, for example, in Wendy and Lucy, I just remember like trust, searching, recording all these cars and just trying to make this like car can't start sound and just trying it and all the, take the spark plugs out, try to start the cut, record it. And then Leslie, you know, lays in the sound of a sewing machine and it's perfect, you know, or whatever. I mean, he just, he just has great sounds and a great sense of, um, so he, uh, he goes in and um, swaps stuff out and, um, and mixes and the mixing is just like a huge part of it. Um, but, uh, Leslie's expensive. I can't afford a lot of Leslie. When I go into Leslie's, like it's not like when Todd Haynes or Gus Van Zant go in with Leslie and they spend a month with Leslie. Like I got Leslie for a week and I got to have my shit together and um, in place. Like I, I don't have time for like expansive trying all kinds of different stuff um, uh, there. So um, and he works really fast. I mean, that's the thing. You turn around and it's mixed. It's weird. You're like, when, huh? What? What just happened? Um, but uh, so, and this last one was actually a bard. Uh, I had coming in at night, um, I would like clunk in my sounds or leave list of sounds. And it was actually a bard graduate that came in and did a lot of um, very obsessive 
sound, make my sounds better basically and um, add a little sound and like he got really into it. Um, and so, and then, you know, I was expecting Leslie to like swap a lot out and he was like, oh, I was like, wait, that's our squeak, right? That my student found online, we're keeping that. He's like, it's a really good squeak. <laughs> so, and, um, and with um, Old Joy, I should say, like in the hot tubs, um, it's true, it was very collaborative, that sound, that, um, when we recorded all the stuff in the hot tubs, which is like two guys alone in these hot springs, where we actually filmed, there was like a huge Russian family there speaking Russian for half the day, which was replaced by a huge Chinese family speaking Chinese for the rest of the day. <laughs> and a bunch of like angry hippies, like, when are you getting out of that tub? And so there was not a quiet place. And um, Eric Offen and his partner who run um, Tandem Sound on 14th Street, they went out to their parents' house in Jersey and put these huge rocks in the bottom of their parents' pool and got up on, and then built this rock formation and then got up on their parents' roof and recorded themselves throwing buckets of water onto the rocks into the swimming pool in Jersey. And that's what, how we recreated the, um, and that was, so it's true that it does, the sound becomes really collaborative and, um, and uh, but you know, you can, the way you cut these days, you can just, you can do a lot on your own, roughly, while you're, they can give you a sense of what you're um, doing so that you can um, just be, um, I mean, Wendy and Lucy, we, I cut in my apartment. So, you know, it's like, what am I going to do? Have a huge crew and, you know, I, I, if anything goes wrong, I don't know what to do. Like, I need a 22-year, a smart 22-year-old to come. I need them to get me completely set up and I'm like, go away. It's not working. Come back. <laughs> okay, thanks. Go away. <laughs> and so, you know, it's true that I, um, I need a lot of tech help. Um, but um, it is a really, to me, it's the most private time aside from writing and, and, and scouting and, and starting to put the film together. Editing to me is like the real time you get to be alone with your movie. This episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast is brought to you by Ovid. IndieWire recently called Ovid an increasingly essential streaming service that's perfect for cinephiles determined to create their own canon. Ovid's collection is hand-curated by human beings, never an algorithm, with films and series you won't find anywhere else. This month, Ovid offers exclusive access to three key films by Marcel O'Fools, Costa Gavra's seldom-seen Eden is West, and the largest collection of independent films from mainland China and Hong Kong. With films from directors like Chantal Ackerman, Charles Burnett, Alexander Rockwell, and Ira Sachs, Ovid invites you to look at life through a different lens. And now, until September 30th, go to ovid.tv, that's O-V-I-D TV, and use code SEPT, S-E-P-T, for a free seven-day trial and 50% off a year's membership. Vicki Farrell, the costume designer, and Dave Dornberg, the production designer, it, it was... Um, it's um, it's great to have people that are uh, that you can collaborate with at that point of it too. Just like they were such great researchers, and um, and it, we went to all these places because we um, we met like a lot of reenactment uh, guys who are still like these guys are in their 80s and they're still like they take vacationers on Oregon Trail. Like you for your vacation, you're going to go spend a week as it was to be a you know, a pioneer in the Oregon Trail. And um, and then we were always um, shifting between this thing, especially like with things having to do with the wagons of like, you know, we found the guy who has the real wagons and like, we, you know, we want to use like the real guys. And it's like, but you're shooting a movie in the middle of nowhere with no backup. And, you know, really we should use the LA guys who are animal wranglers and know what goes on in movies. And, you know, and we constantly had this like romance for the real, the real guy and the like practical side going, well, we really, you know, what are we going to do if something breaks uh, with the real guy? You know, we got to have like LA guy, you know, and, and in the end it turned out to be this in between place where we, um, but it is, you just, there's so many people that are obsessed with the period. This guy's whole business out that we met out in Oregon is people having their family 
wagons redone in the middle of a recession, no less. Like, we're like, really? You're, making, you're not feeling the pain of the recession? People have the money to have their family's wagon from the 1800s <laughs> rebuilt? I guess, you know, not everyone's feeling the sting. But, um, but it turned out, you know, to be this, uh, that we just got so much out of, from the people that are just so caught up in that period. And um, just, like, you don't even, wouldn't even know another world exists. And, um, and also, um, thank God having L.A. Wrangler guy there when the oxen break free and go charging through your set. Um, you know, like this in-between place that we were always trying to balance. But, um, I mean, the best part of making a film is researching it. It really is. It's just the most fun thing, the scouting and the researching. It really is like the great, um, whatever anybody, uh, to me, the great, that's where the rewards are in that, in that time. Everything is still possible and you're just like getting all this information together and it's so exciting and you're figuring it out and you're seeing new places and you're learning about stuff you couldn't learn about otherwise because I just am a bad student and, and it's, yeah, that's the, really the fun part. Other questions? Jim. The question is to explain, I guess, the, the gender differences in the response to the Indian, to, to the other, essentially. Well, one thing that became really obvious in the um, journals, well, you know, you read a lot of journals and then something hits you and you're just like, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, one thing start, you, you sum up something because you get attached to it. Like I remember one reading one woman say, I'm keeping this journal should my, my husband ever care to get to know me. <laughs> and like that, like, I was like, oh, wow. And um, you realize in reading the journals that you're in this constant state of community. There's no privacy, but it's totally lonely. And, um, and those bonnets, aside from being really dangerous because you have no peripheral vision when you are walking with oxen, and, um, they, and you can't really hear well through them, um, but they also, like, you don't have your whole scape of vision. It's really like for the women, this like honing in of, you know, it really uh, narrows the scope. You see what's right in front of you. And, um, and uh, yes, yeah, so you read the journals and you really realize that the, um, everyone is so busy and so drained and so, um, you know, at the point we catch up with them on the journey, it just seemed like every word that came out of their mouth, I just really try to like constantly talk the actors out of, can we just take that line away? Because just like, I just don't even think they could even say it. Like, who cares? Like, it's just like, they can't even, so sick of each other, right? Like, just who could even talk? Um, and, uh, but the friendship was, you realize the friendship and the love, it, it becomes with the women. And uh, that's who, that's how they're, really making it is because the women are um, forging these friendships with each other. And I did want that to come through because that seemed throughout um, the, um, while the, so much of the men's writing is there's um, second guessing in politics and um, who's, you know, they like set out in these big groups and they make laws for each other and they set like a captain, who's the captain of the wagon train and who's going to be the pilot. And, and they set out, they, the men go and they agree on the laws of the trip. And then as they get further along, they start breaking off into smaller and smaller groups. Correct me if I'm wrong, from what I understand. Uh, just because a, just walking behind, you know, the dust, um, you, I, I think the trail was something like 10 miles long by 1850 because you just, nobody wants to be in the back. You know, they say like, devil take the hindmost. And so, um, and also there just aren't the resources when they get to camp. There's not enough grass or water. And then you're waiting, someone's wagon's always broken and you're waiting for the Joneses so you can, so the groups became smaller and smaller as they went out west. And I think, um, you know, it, 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 there's a real difference there in, there's just such a difference in the male diaries than the f women's diaries. The voices were really different. And, and, and friendship um, in, in 
the hardship of leaving people behind when you went. You just left family and friends and everything you knew. I mean, I just really just constantly wondered, would I have gone west? Would I have done it? I mean, home would seem so unsatisfying if you just saw a bunch of people going, right? Like, they're, look at them. Where are they going? <laughs> and then, um, but yet going, you know, you, just to go into the unknown, um, you know, I'm not, like, it, you really, I think religion is a big part of it, this thing that would drive you to this heaven on earth at the other coast, you know. Um, but just that thing, the, how you could survive losing children, losing loved ones along the way, leaving everyone behind, I think, for the, it, it comes through in the women's diaries are just this um, deep friendships that evolved. And so, um, and on just being on the outskirts of the activity all the time of, you know, when things are being decided and getting your 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 moment to wield your power in the privacy of your tent with your husband or finding out the information through your friend. Did your friend's husband say anything? Did you hear anything? Like, you know, that's a lot of that's made up. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't, you know, I mean, it's hard to know how, um, uh, I mean, there were all these books, there were these books at the time that were sort of like, romance novels, I think, that were very much about, you know, like, like big fear was like, you'd go out and you'd be raped by the savages, but it's all written like really sexy. Like, um, and, and, you know, and you were much, you were so, like, that was so the least of your worries at that point, especially 1845, I think. And, um, you know, a lot of Native Americans are how people got safely to where they were going. And, um, but there, uh, you do read, there is definitely suspicion and racism and I mean, we're a racist country. It was racist, you know, and just, you know, other, other, just otherness and fear of otherness. Um, and uh, I mean, you can imagine those clothes, everyone's so sewn up all the time. The pajamas are so sewn up, like there's so much clothing and then it must just be so odd to come across someone so naked and um, bareback and, you know. Right. <laughs> the questions, yes, sir. The question is, uh, how many people actually survived, and how many did not? It's impossible to clarify because everyone's account is so different. But um, the party didn't stay together. The Tethero party was a true party that was a break off of the other parties. But I mean, our story is such a hodgepodge of diaries and made up things in the Meek story. It's, you know, nothing to be followed. But in the true Meek story, some people write that 23 people died. And then when um, this man, this missionary Black Moses finally found them and brought them food, that another 50 people died from, um, they were just, they ate so quickly and so much food that they didn't make it after that. Um, but it, the number varies no matter what you're reading. And as I said in the Q&A, if you read Stephen Meek's account, everybody made it through just fine. So it, it really is hard to know. The, the, I think, you know, people were traveling so far apart and in different cliques, there was just different information, I guess. Um, the area where we shot, they, they, there are um, three graves of three little girls out there um, where we were. But I, I don't really know the absolute real number about taking the editing taking shape well it's funny I was talking to Todd Haynes about it last night and I kind of forgot this um, I started cutting in Portland and um, and then I finished in New York but I always do like a huge assembly first like exactly how it's supposed to be and you know it's giant and then I got really freaked out and I cut just a ton of stuff out and then it was weird a thing of like instead of whittling away of putting stuff back in slowly as I went which was an odd way at it but I had never really worked with um, nine performers before and that was really um, it was just so fun um, cutting scenes with uh, just trying to figure out a scene um, like at the petroglyph camp where there's nine of them and they're running scampering all around and um, just certain discoveries in those moments that are different from how I would teach where I would try to 
figure out all the eye lines of the nine people, and then you start cutting, and you go like, oh, it's a gang. There are no eye lines. It doesn't matter. Phew, I can just cut this however I want. You know, things like that, or just, um, uh, just it still amazes me what space does to a performance. How if you just add time on the either side of something and draw something out, how different the meaning of of how somebody's getting something across is. And things like that are just, um, I mean, that's what's great about editing. Like, there's just discoveries every day. You go like, wow, that's how that works. That's so great. But I, I mean, it's a, I cut it for like six, I teach too, so like it's, I'm teaching two days a week and cutting five days a week, so it gets slower. And, and um, I can't, it's a long process, and I can't remember like my all my eureka moments, but um, you know it. Uh, I don't know it. You that is the thing of it is that you're like discovering little things and how you can manipulate them and and how it, you can a performance that maybe in the beginning you just didn't know how it would. Um, the whole time we were shooting, I was a. I, you know, like Shirley Henderson, for example, is an actress who, every time she's in front of the camera, you just feel like everything else seems fake, right? You're just like, oh my God, you know, oh, like, geez. And, and, and Meek is so big, and, and, and he was in real life. Everybody writes about what a, like, showman he was. He was big and um, brassy and, you know, and, and that's how Bruce played him. But sometimes you're... you're working with Shirley and then Bruce enters, Meek enters the frame and you're like, how is it ever going to be the same movie? You know, like that was sort of my panic when I was shooting. I was like, how, how is Shirley Henderson in the same movie that Bruce Greenwood, like is this, how is this tone ever going to come together? Mrs. White and Meek, like cannot be in the same world. And you know, and then um, in editing, you can figure that out. And actually Leslie Schatz really helped me too because he like mixing really helps out also just like he had this idea of like taking some of the bass out of um, one voice and moving you know and just bringing them into a world together so that everybody's acting style is like um, working together and um, I don't know if that really answers your question. <laughs> they were really stinky. The actors, I want to tell you. <laughs> Michelle just kept saying that. I stink, I stink. I was excellent. Was there um, an odor wrangler? <laughs> there was. Um, well, it's funny, Michelle's finger you mentioned. I'm so happy for her finger. She, she somehow has managed to stick the same finger into a blender twice. Been taken to the hospital twice for sticking the same finger into a blender. I'm like, how do you do that? But her, that finger is so mangled. That it was so fun to like have it so dirty and be able to shoot it. It looked like... Yeah, um, but um, it's so dirty out there. Like we were just all to get to where we were going. You're off. You're driving off road in these cheap like cargo vans, right? That like you rent. And um, my producers get completely blacklisted from every rental place in Oregon. I mean, it was they the wagons held up through everything. I have to say, in every car, truck, everything else broke constantly. But like the dust is so fine, it's just coming through the doors and coming through the air conditioner. And you, everybody has a bandana on in the uh, van. I kept thinking of those scenes in um, Billy Jack when they go in the diner and the flour gets poured over the kid's head. <laughs> like that's what we all look like. Was, everyone was just so dirty, and um, that uh, yeah, it was. And everyone just the crew was dirty, the actors were dirty, and um, we let them wash. Vicky finally washed their clothes once because they were just complaining of how bad they smelled. And so there was one day when they their clothes were dirty, um, washed and then fake dirtied, and um, but other than that, it's just pretty dirty out there. The question is, how does Kelly know when still is too still? Yeah, that's a good question. Because it's funny, seeing the film last night, like I've never seen it that huge before. And I have just such a crappy editing system. Like I'm editing, it's too, I mean, it's like this big. It's not big enough. And, you're, and then you make an editing choice that you are, get, you know, seeing it. Like things could be tweaked. Like you're seeing it that huge. You go like, ah, oh, that time's different. 
when it's that big than when it's smaller. And so that in and of itself, um, you know, on the when we're shooting, we we knew we were going to be doing these chores, and so we just I would film the chores pretty much happening. Uh, you know, build the fire, um, knead the bread, whatever it is, and we just started. We were just constantly having to start. You got to start a shot with like a fresh reel, and um, and you have all these short ends that you're trying to get to, but that we can never get to because we just all there was just the shots. I don't do a lot of takes, but the shots are long, and um, so that I can decide later um, how how still is too still, you know, and um, but I guess that's kind of the experiment part of it. Um, is this idea of if you take something like the Western that's based on action and you apply like a Chantel Ackerman approach to it of expanding real moments, could that expansion of time somehow equal action again in the way that instead of like, boom, a gunshot, you know, would work? could you somehow get tension in this expanse of a moment instead of the expanse sort of just, usually I mean silence is usually setting you up for action or taking you down from action. And could it sort of work the other way where the still moment is, um, uh, like I'm thinking right now of that, the, um, what's the O'Fool's film, the, uh, with James Mason the and reckless uh, moment. the reckless moment where uh, the whole soundtrack is just, uh, she's like the fifties housewife and the whole soundtrack is like the nagging kids and the kids and mom, mom, blah, blah, blah. Uh, hello, Mrs. Wilson, the town, everybody's friendly and talking, talking, talking. And then, and music, 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 music. And then she sees the dead body on the beach and it just becomes silence and it's just the wind. And then she ditching the dead body and it's just the wind in the, a little bit of wave sound and a little putt-putt motor. And the whole time she's ditching the body, it just goes quiet and like everything stops. And just a woman in a body in a boat in the wind. And then she gets back home and the mundane of her life starts and all the noise and the action starts again. But it's like a reverse of that moment instead of being the heightened moment is like Dumping a body is the most peaceful moment in her life. Like, finally, I'm away from the kids. I got to go dump this body, you know. And um, and that works in this other way, you know. And so I, you know, that was sort of the experimental thing of trying to, um, yeah, use silence in a setup that's usually about confrontation and 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 more make it just about, you know, trance and monotony without. Um, you know, making the audience fall asleep, <laughs> I guess. The question is, how does Kelly approach having a character who speaks a language that the characters don't understand and that most of the audience wouldn't understand? The flip side of that being, for those who do understand the character, what considerations go, p play into effect? Right, well, I'm concerned about it because uh, he's speaking Nez Pierce and the actor Rod Radeau who plays the Indian in Meek's Cutoff, he, um, he's Crow himself and he speaks uh, five, when we met him he spoke five Native American languages and he learned Nez Pierce for this part and he went to Pendleton where the, there's only, he plays a Cayuse Indian which I guess the Cayuse language is dead and they were usurped by the Nez Pierce and adopted that language. And I think there's only, there's very few people that still speak Nez Pierce. So we send him to a place where they, um, t to learn the dialogue and they recorded it for him on tape but they wouldn't write it down. And so um, it was never written down and I'm editing it without anything to look at. So I'm way more afraid of the people that know the language seeing the film and, and me having slaughtered it in the editing because it's a really hard language and um, it was just so difficult. Um, I do, uh, I said before, I have a great uh, souvenir of, um, that I found in the desert 
speaking of a Giorgio O'Keefe moment, uh, of a cow hip bone where Rod, the actor, had written phonetically all his lines on this cow bone that I, that I have. But it's, um, uh, so, it's about eight people that are going to be really pissed if they if I did it, <laughs> I slaughtered it. But but also I could get in trouble because um, the uh, they wouldn't give him a, a death prayer of which he sings in the film because that's very I guess private and personal. And they were like, you can get, sing your own crow death prayer, you're not getting ours. Um, and he did, and I didn't know what it was going to be till he did it in that moment. So that's probably a little. I don't know, funky to some people, for sure. But um, the idea was that the audience would always be in the perspective of um, of the white immigrants. And so um, that point of view is, you know. And um, I don't know if that really answers your question. I don't know. But uh, I'm sure... I'm sure the language is screwed up in the editing. I'm sh I, I, there's no way I got it completely right. But I, Rod probably got it pretty right because he really has just a great ear for language. Other questions? Yes. I, I will say this oh. about the language. Just the, ca the Cayuse. There's this, um, my uh, a student of mine that was doing some research for us found we were trying to find any remaining Cayuse, and this, the last living guy, I think, that speaks Cayuse, he found him on YouTube, and we played it, and he does this long prayer in Cayuse, and you're like, what? You don't have any idea what it's about, and you're just watching it, and it's really, he's in his chair in the yard, and he's doing, and then the translator, after it's all over, translate it, and she says, um, we pray that all the filmmakers make honest films and but and it's a film it's a prayer to filmmakers it's so weird it's just so bizarre um so uh yes um that's uh, was a true part of the story they found gold and there's been a lot written about it's called the blue bucket uh Blue Bucket Gold is like, and it, it's um, always referred to as, and people, there were a lot of people that went back and tried to retrace the meek wagon steps to find the gold, and a big hit was never really found, but part of the myth of the meek story is that people did claim that they had found gold at this particular spot, but they just didn't have the energy at that point. They were like 25 hours without water. They just didn't have the energy to do anything about it. Yeah. He asked me how poor I am. <laughs> Very. Um, well, uh, we always say, um, like, we took less money than we could have possibly taken for this movie because we um, are, like, the parameters are like, you, you, if you put in money, you can't come to set, you can't final cut like it's just so you have to be so hands-off um that that's not very appealing to most people and um so we've made these films for really small amounts of money I would say on this one we stretched ourselves further than um I mean it was nutty right I mean like it was very it was it was well you know I mean, if you, you stayed in a motel and you had what you had, whether you were doing craft service or whether you were the star of the movie, you got everyone. It was a very level playing field, and which is interesting in film. Um, but it is, um, uh, I mean, I don't really have a foot in the commercial world. I teach for a living. And we always say, like, that we're we just try to think of it like we're going off to do it with our friends to do an art project and we want to have room to fail and we want to have room to have it not work out and not have anybody's life be over or career be over anything like that and I don't really um know how uh I've never made money off film at all. I got paid for the first time ever on this film and I, you know, I made minimum wage for the first time for shooting. You know, I mean, I, uh, I don't know how you, uh, I don't know how you get money and keep 
complete hands off. Um, I don't know how you do that. On the other hand, you know, I'm no spring chicken. It gets harder. It's it's harder. It's physically hard, and it's hard to keep um, putting people through it. You know, I mean, like everyone's game once, but not everyone's game once. But some people are. But like, it's 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 hard. Um, I don't know. The thing that I find the most challenging about it, actually, is that um, when you're shooting, there's no money for anything. You got to watch every foot of film you're shooting, and which okay, so you have to be careful. But you know, like you can't. The sun sets early. You don't make your day. You can't make it up. You just can't have it. There's just not enough time. There's no bending. There's no money. You're going to edit in the shittiest editing room or in your apartment. There's no nothing, no frills. But then, like, later, there seems to be, like, more wiggle room for, like, I don't know. There's things, like, I don't know. It's too complicated to get into. Just, you know, like, getting your actors to a festival the way they need to get there and, or, you know, because now you're back in real life. And, or, like, Feeding your, you know, a party after your film screens at New York Film Festival. You know, like, I, I'm just like, I'm so cheap now. I'm just like, where's that? Who's, like, everyone's got their celebratory plate of food. I'm like, who's paying for that? Where's that money coming from? God damn it. You know, like, I can't, like, separate it. I'm like, I, I am just like, what? Where do we get this hotel room now? Huh? We, how do we, how's this possible? You know, like, where was this cash when I was in the desert, you know, and needed the rattlesnake kit that we couldn't afford to save a life? Um, you know, like, that is the um, hardest thing for me to um, get my head around, that it takes one certain amount of money to get a film out that is a different playing field than the amount of money you have when you're making a film. And um, it's complicated, but that, uh, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying. It's complicated. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, um, I will say that I don't see a, I won't say, I, I don't see a ton of women. I don't see any women um, in America making personal films that they want to make and making a living off of it the way I might see, um, you know, like I don't know what the a female equivalent to a Spike Jones is or a Noah Baumbach or a Todd Haynes or a Gus Van Zandt or a, I could go on and on. Love those guys. I don't know what the female equivalent is for that. And, um, but fortunately I have a good, I like my teaching gig, so that's nice, right? And, um, and it's, I really think it takes a different skill set than I actually have to work inside the industry. Like I learned kind of young that I just don't, um, I just don't really have those talents personality wise. And so I, my little group that I'm making my films with um, does not provide any financial security, but it is, um, a safe little way to go out and make a movie and have complete creative, con creative con as much creative control as you can afford, um, which isn't complete creative control, obviously, but as much as you can afford. And I will also say, I won't say this, if my, I think my producers aren't here, so I'll say this. Um, that, um, I think mostly in some weird way, no, it's, it's, it's shooting myself in the foot to say this. I usually say like my limits, have worked for me to some degree aesthetically. Like a lot of filmmakers just wouldn't work for their aesthetic to have the limits that I've had. But I'm not not tired, I'll tell you that. You know, and um, I, um, whatever, I would like a nice plushy bathrobe and slippers sometimes <laughs> in the big room, in the, you know, whatever, it's, you know, I feel lucky to have made these films. And uh, I teach up at Bard, and I feel lucky to have that gig. So, um, but I'm not opposed to getting paid for making a movie at some point. 
<laughs> before I hit 50. <laughs> yes, Oscilloscope, um, who put out Wendy and Lucy, is going to put the movie out in, um, I think not till next spring, but yeah, it's very nice. Um, I think maybe May or June. I don't really know what the plan is. We just sold the movie and... Um, yeah, and we and it's we have some distributors around the world, which is nice. Yeah, I think it'll make its little way out, which will be great. So um, I'm happy you all um, saw it now, and um, I really appreciate you coming. And thanks a lot. And thank you. Thank you, Kelly, for your fantastic film. For being here.